0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. In May 2020, the Florida Historical Society will be hosting a Caribbean conference cruise. One stop is San Juan, Puerto Rico, where Ponce de Leon sailed from in 1513 to give our state its name.
1: I kind of think it's important because I see it as the catalyst the kickoff point for what evolved into modern Florida.
0: The conference crews will be departing from Port Canaveral near the place where John Glenn's Mercury flight was launched and stopping at Grand Turk near the location where the Friendship 7 spacecraft splashed down in 1962. It was a harrowing expedition and it was really kind of on the edge of how we understood what humans were capable of doing in space. When Europeans first arrived in Florida from islands in the Caribbean, dozens of indigenous groups were thriving here. Today, the Seminole represent all of those lost indigenous tribes. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
2: When Juan Ponce de Leon discovered Florida, my people and many others had been living here for more than 10,000 years. We had complex societies, elaborate systems of trade, and our own ancient religions. Our villages throughout this land had large ceremonial centers surrounded by buildings built on shell middens and council houses made of wood and thatch that could hold more than a thousand people.
0: That's actress Marion Marsh portraying one of the first native Floridians to encounter Ponce de Leon when he came to Florida in 1513. The Florida Historical Society staged the original theatrical presentation Ponce de Leon landed here at historic courtroom venues in 2013 as part of the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state.
2: The day I saw those three Spanish ships, I knew our lives had changed forever. I rejoiced when the current swept the smallest ship away, and I hoped the others would follow. When the small group came ashore, we gave those men a greeting that let them know they were not welcome here. But that did not stop the Spanish, though for the next century and beyond. They worked hard to change our culture by making us abandon our ancient religion and adopt theirs. They enslaved and killed us by the thousands. Finally, the unfamiliar diseases they brought to us proved too much for our medicine men to fight. The great native societies of Florida collapsed. And the people disappeared.
0: That year, the Florida Historical Society also hosted its first conference cruise, going to the Bahamas to sail in Ponce's Wake up the east coast of Florida. In May 2020, the Florida Historical Society will be hosting another conference cruise that will travel all the way to Ponce's starting place in Puerto Rico. James Cusick and Sherry Johnson are editors of the book, The Voyages of Ponce de Leon Scholarly Perspectives.
3: Well, we recognize the importance of the Ponce de Leon voyages to Florida, and we recognize that the Florida Historical Society has great scholarship in previous issues of the Florida Historical Quarterly. So Jim and I decided to get together, put that together, to have a historic vision of what people have said about Ponce de Leon over the years, invite contemporary scholars to give their opinions and put them together in a volume that's accessible, not just to scholars, but to the general reading public. The
0: 1513 voyage of Ponce de Leon gave our state its name, but it was important for other reasons, For example, this voyage was the first documented contact between Europeans and the native people of Florida and marks the discovery of the Gulf Stream, which would lead to further colonization efforts. James
1: Cusick. I kind of think it's important because I see it as the catalyst, the kickoff point for what evolved into modern Florida. And it's not so often in history that you can actually point to something and say, that's the starting point of where our modern society really began to emerge. But it's really true that 1513, which prompted is the 1521 attempt at settlement, changed the state forever. Uh, you can argue that, well, sooner or later, somebody else would have come. That's true. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to look at, you know, where Florida has been in the past 500 years, most of the things that started happening, the influx of new peoples, the, you know, contested space between these new... Colonial explorers and Native Americans occurred there. The introduction of new species into the state, the beginnings of being uh, uh, brought into a larger economy that caused the development of the state and the exploitation of its resources. It all came from this time. And now, here we are 500 years later, we should probably be doing an assessment of what's happened in the last 500 years and where are we going to be 500 years from now. I mean, maybe we should give some thought to where we're headed.
0: Ponce de Leon is characterized by some as a violent opportunist and by others as an intrepid explorer. Co-editor Sherry Johnson provides context for discussion about who Ponce was.
3: Ponce de Leon was a man of his time. He was a product of the explorer cohort that came. He came on the second Columbus voyage, the massive voyage, uh, 17 ships, 1,500 colonizers. He was a second one among the second group, so they usually were cut out of what they found on the first voyage. He made a mark for himself on Hispaniola and subsequently when he was cut out in Hispaniola he was awarded the adelantado or the governorship of Puerto Rico. He went to Puerto Rico, made a substantial fortune, largely by supplying Spanish ships coming into the New World. And then, as is typical of that cohort, he was cut out by the Columbus family again. And in compensation, because of his networking, he was awarded the patent, or the capitulacion, to go and explore different regions. That capitulacion gave him title to go find Bimini. And instead, what he found, he found Bimini, but he also found La Florida.
0: When the Florida Historical Society conference cruise goes to Puerto Rico in May 2020, attendees will have the opportunity to visit Ponce de Leon's tomb in the San Juan Cathedral. When Ponce returned to Florida in 1521 and attempted to establish a colony, he was mortally wounded by the Calusa. Ponce was first taken to Cuba, but interred in San Juan, where he had served as governor. While Ponce is credited with making first contact between Europeans and native Floridians, some scholars
1: question that. Actually, people should now be looking at the most recent article that's appeared in the Florida Historical Quarterly by Samuel Turner uh, because he cites you know, pretty good evidence that some of the early colonists who were probably engaged in slaving along the island ch- uh, chain had made it to the Florida coast may or not have actually engaged in the slave trade, but definitely were scouting out the area. And that rumors of uh, there being land uh, in that direction were uh, finding their way back to Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. Um, And we know now too, I mean, there's pretty good evidence that Florida, uh, some sketchy version of Florida was beginning to appear on maps or cartographic records even before uh, Juan Ponce set out. so, uh, so that does change the story a little bit.
0: Cusick points out that it was Ponce's 1513 voyage that in historical terms literally put Florida on the map with a name. It's a reference to a Spanish-speaking native in Florida who was able to translate for Ponce that has led to speculation that other Spanish were there before him. Cusick and Johnson believe it's more likely that this translator was a native from a Spanish-controlled Caribbean island who made it to Florida before Ponce.
3: Yes, we know there was trade among the Caribbean groups, trade as far north as the Mississippian culture. And the the cultural brokers among these different people, it wouldn't have been uncommon for them to speak a mutually intelligible language. That one, a a, a broker, a cultural broker from the Taino could have been Um, visiting the Calusa at the time, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility, for sure.
0: The book, The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, Scholarly Perspectives, reflects nearly a century of research from a variety of contributors.
1: Well, the earliest uh, contributor is Judge Harrison, who was uh, uh, an early, I don't want to say amateur, but maybe avocational historian and very active with the Florida Historical Society, who wrote a short piece on the importance of discovery. Uh, his work is followed by T. Frederick Davis, uh, who's very well known for uh, writing an early history of Jacksonville, also had a lot of experience as a weatherman in the, in the Caribbean, and his experience as a weatherman actually figured into some of his interpretation about how the voyage fared. Uh, and then there's an article by uh, Douglas Peck, a uh, retired military officer who actually uh, attempted a reconstruction of the voyage from Puerto Rico, uh, to Florida and concluded that the most likely landing spot was Melbourne.
3: There's a small piece by a, an excerpt from one of Luis Arana's who, he was the historian of the Castillo de San Marcos here in San Augustine. Um, a short but succinct piece. And so also can...
1: very important because it mentions what the three ships were and mm-hmm. the, reg- you yes. know, and the documentation for the uh, registry of the ships. Um, And then J.T. Milanich, who was working with his daughter at that time, uh, they co-wrote an article on this very interesting Italian map, the Ferducci map, which seems to have all these place names that apparently came from someone who was on the expedition because we don't know how else they would have uh, found out in in working in Italy uh, what these place names were. Um, And then we have a whole series of, uh, of new contributions, including J. Michael Francis's, which is on the Fountain of Youth and how the whole legend of the Fountain of Youth came into existence. And Brendan Sineval's and Eugene Lyons' uh, work on the family history of uh, Juan Ponce.
3: Amanda J. Snyder did a nice bibliographical wrap up. So of things that are not available through the quarterly or through the Florida Historical Society uh, that you can turn to her bibliography and find additional re- reading material.
1: Um, and all of this stuff is fairly short to read. It's nice that it's a short yeah. book, and you can get through it quickly. But it has a lot of essentials in it. You can you can trace the changes in knowledge. I mean, uh, Benjamin Harrison's work still cites fifteen twelve as the year that the voyage took place. By the time you get to T. Frederick Davis, they've you know the historians have finally uh, analyzed the text and know that it, it wasn't in fifteen twelve. It was in fifteen thirteen. Uh, there's the um, there are good, or fairly good, I think, English translations of the Spanish texts. I mean, they they were done, you know, a, a little early on. You can find newer translations that would that would that are slightly different in their in how they the language they use or the words they choose for the translation. But they're still good, solid translations. Uh, and then there's all diff- all sorts of different debates about the landing point and where the voyage actually went. Um, so it's. Uh, It's certainly not the last word on this subject, but if you want to uh, become fairly quickly uh, knowledgeable about what the debate is and the literature that it's based on, it's great for that.
0: And while the legend of Ponce searching for the mystical fountain of youth indoors, Cusick and Johnson point out that there is no evidence to support this idea. James Cusick and Sherry Johnson are editors of the book The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, Scholarly Perspectives and Andrew Jackson in Florida. The courtroom drama Ponce de Leon landed here can be seen at myfloridahistory.org under Educational Resources or on the Florida Historical Society YouTube channel. Ponce is played by Chad Light.
2: I came here to the new world In 1493, on the second voyage of Christopher Columbus, I was a boy of 19, but I have served in the wars in the peninsula that you know as Spain. When we came here, we were young. We came here for opportunity, for glory, for honor, for wealth,
0: and for God. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Go to myfloridahistory.org to find out more about the Florida Historical Society Caribbean Conference Cruise departing from Port Canaveral in May 2020. Paper presentations and roundtable discussions about Florida history and culture will take place on board the Carnival Breeze with special tours in San Juan, Puerto Rico, Grand Turk, and St. Thomas. Don't miss the boat. Go to MyFloridaHistory.org for registration information. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, every American manned mission into space has been launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, including John Glenn's historic flight as the first American to orbit the Earth. Yeah, that's right, Ben. In February of
4: 1962, John Glenn successfully orbited the Earth three times, and this was a monumental undertaking. Now, we're we're talking about 1962, and at this point, we had till the end of the decade to get to the moon, which eventually did in July of 1969. But there were a number of steps that had to be completed, and that included a series of other missions, starting with the Mercury missions, uh, Gemini, including two astronauts, and eventually the Apollo program, which would eventually put human beings on the moon. So starting with Mercury and, and starting with John Glenn and this group of really experimental pilots, they were strapping into a tin can on top of an Atlas rocket. And you're right, they were launched into space in the early 1960s, Glenn in February of 1962. And they had to test the system. Glenn was actually a pilot. So he was piloting this uh, small tin can around the Earth three times. He had to do a series of maneuvers, turning the spacecraft around. All of these would seem like very routine things when we got to the Apollo uh, mission. They were very, very important. Important, and they were very, very challenging and difficult. Glenn had some problems. There were sensors that went bad during the flight. The flight only lasted four hours and 55 minutes, but that was four hours and 55 minutes of every single second essentially being planned out with different types of experiments, maneuvers and things like that. So it was a harrowing expedition and it was really kind of on the edge of how we understood what humans were capable of doing in space.
0: Now, we're talking in the Florida Frontiers studio at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, and this building is also where a special stamp commemorating the Mercury program was stored.
4: That's right. In fact, that's what we're looking at today. I grabbed a collection of the stamps. We have about five or six of these Project Mercury commemorative stamps that were issued in February of 1962. What's unique about these stamps is the fact that they were produced entirely in secrecy. So they were designed, they were printed, and they were distributed to post offices around the country, including the building we're right now, which was originally U.S. Post Office, in early 1962. But even the postmaster had no idea what was inside of these bags. And that was because of the reason I mentioned before. This was such an experimental project. If Glenn did not successfully land, if something happened during this mission, They couldn't issue a commemorative stamp if something tragic would have occurred. So they were brought and delivered to the post office here completely in secrecy. And it wasn't until mid-afternoon, about 3 o'clock on February twentieth, 1962, that a call came down from somewhere in Washington, D.C. that said, open the bag and start selling these stamps. He made it. It was important, at least, that from a PR perspective at that time, that these stamps didn't see the light of day until he successfully landed. And they're really beautiful stamps. You can see here that most of them have been preserved fairly well. The ones that we're looking at here are actually affixed to uh, commemorative envelopes with the first day cancellation stamped on top. But they're multicolors, and you can see the mercury capsule. Earth is in the, the lower right-hand corner. You can see some stars in the background. And they use multicolors In 1962, this was a really a work of art, and it's own right.
0: Now, John Glenn's flight launched from Cape Canaveral, where the Florida Historical Society 2020 conference cruise will be departing next May, and his spacecraft landed near Grand Turk, which we will be visiting during that conference cruise.
4: Yeah, you're right, Ben. He launched aboard the Mercury capsule that was sitting on top of the Atlas rocket from Cape Canaveral. Of course, those take off east going over the ocean, and he actually orbited the Earth three times. So he traveled, the capsule itself and John Glenn traveled 75,000 miles in just under five hours. And when he came back around for that third orbit, he began the reentry procedures, and he was actually flying the capsule for much of that reentry. And he landed about 800 miles southeast of Florida, which would put him, you're right, just off the coast of Grand Tur. And he splashed down. Everything was successful. They were able to get Glenn out of the capsule. He was on board the uh, U.S. Navy ship and was back in the United States shortly after. So it was a, a really a, a resounding success. They had a few hiccups. In fact, during reentry, there were sensors that were wrong. And, and Glenn had reported a few problems that he thought could potentially be catastrophic. But fortunately, they were not. There were some bad sensors and things like that. But he did obviously survive the, uh, the mission, landed safely, splashed down on the Atlantic and uh, made his way back to the U.S.
0: A fascinating story. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the Project Mercury stamps we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Stand on the shores of Caves. This is Florida Frontiers. When Europeans first arrived in Florida in the 16th century, dozens of indigenous groups were thriving here. Today, the Seminole represent all of those lost indigenous tribes. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science.
5: I'm Brian Zepeda. I'm from the Seminole Tribe of Florida, born and raised in Naples, Florida. When I was a kid, my great grandparents were still alive, my grandparents were still alive, and we had a village in Naples, Florida, and I got to spend a lot of time in that village. So I learned how to deal with alligators, turtles, I learned how to fish, hunt, start fires without matches, all that kind of stuff, how to cook over open fire. As I tell people, I had a uh, money poor, but culture rich childhood.
6: That was Seminole Tribal Council Naples liaison, Brian Zapata talking about growing up in a traditional Seminole village in Naples, Florida. Zepeda is an artist who teaches Seminole arts, including wood carving, beadwork, silverwork, leatherwork, stomp dancing, and storytelling. I recently talked with Brian Zepeda at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, Florida. He told me more about the traditional Seminole arts that he helps to keep alive for future generations.
5: In 1997, I was asked if I would work for a soon-to-be-open museum that the Seminole Tribe of Florida had called the Atatagi Museum. The director at that time was Billy Cypress. He's since passed away, but Billy asked me if I would make some reproduction items for the exhibit. So he asked me what I could make, and I said, well, I make just about everything. If you give me a list, I can can, uh, tell you how many items I can make. And so the next day, he gave me three pages of stuff. And it took me about a month, I guess, to make most of the stuff, so I I made most of it and I brought it over to him at the museum and he was surprised because he had asked other people the same thing and they never produced anything for him. So it was at that point that he asked me if I would like to have a permanent job at the museum as the operations manager. So I took it and then my position as operations manager, I was able to fine-tune the skills that I already had, plus pick up other skills from other tribal members who had skills that I didn't. Um, like canoe building I picked up from the late Henry J. Billy. Um, He taught me how to select a tree, what to look for. He taught me how to carve the wood, how it reacts, how it'll twist if you do certain things to it. Along with Henry J. Billy and some of the other tribal elders who lived out in Big Cypress, I picked up a lot more skills. So today I make all sorts of things. I know when people call the tribe asking for someone to make stuff for museums or collectors, they usually send them to me or my brother Pedro, because between the two of us, we, we make or do just about everything associated with Seminole culture.
6: Brian Zapeta makes many crafted items in the Seminole tradition, including colorful and intricately beaded bandolier bags.
5: The beadwork I do today is different than the beadwork I did as a kid. As a kid, I did beadwork on a loom. And going back again to Billy Cypress in 1998 or 99, he asked me if I could make a beaded bandolier bag. Seminoles hadn't made them since the 1800s. And I said, well, as long as I can see an actual bandolier bag in person, and the museum had one, or had a couple of them in their collection. So I looked at them for a couple of days before I tried to reproduce them. And the first bag I made was pretty simple. But I would say I made that bag about four times because I would make it and I wouldn't like the way it looks so I would take the whole thing apart and do it over and over and over until it looked at least passable. At least where I thought somebody would want this bag. I still have that bag and I look at it today and I think oh my gosh that's a piece of garbage. And other people look at it and they've offered me a lot of money for it but I I, I just can't bring myself to sell it because it's the first one I made. But today, it seems like that's one of the things I'm really known for is my beadwork. I'm one of five in the country that do this particular type of beadwork.
6: Brian Zapeta is also a storyteller. During the Florida Folk Festival, he shared some traditional Seminole stories with an audience beneath the Florida Folklife tent.
5: The first story I told was about the Polynesians and, and our interaction with them thousands of years ago when they visited Florida. The second story I told was what a lot of people look at as a legend, I guess, or a folktale. And it was about how the mama possum got her pouch. But for us, we have stories about things that are historical, actual things that happened. Like we have stories from our seminal wars that we had with the United States. And we have stories about how mama possum got her pouch. You know? So we have stories about just about everything in life. And we use those stories as teaching tools for our kids because a lot of our stories that we have have a moral at the end or something that explains something in nature or explains something about our culture to kids. So myself, I've tried to instill those stories in my kids. So my kids know a lot of the stories and some of the stories they like and some of the stories are like, oh, we don't wanna hear that story again. Um, but for the most part, they, I think they actually enjoy the stories, especially if I sing a song that goes along with one of the stories.
6: Brian Zapata's art is currently on display at Walt Disney World's Epcot at the American Heritage Gallery in an exhibit called Creating Tradition. Innovation and Change in American Indian Art. The exhibit contains the work of contemporary Native artists as well as artifacts from centuries past, representing 40 different Native American tribes from seven geographic regions across the United States. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. That's also where you can register for the Florida Historical Society Caribbean Conference Cruise taking place in May 2020. That's myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.